Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Patient No Longer. I'm Ryan Donahue, Governance Institute faculty member and solutions expert for NRC Health. Really excited for today's guest. We're going to be talking to Deborah Legan of PIH Health. She's Vice President of Marketing and Consumer Engagement. Engagement is something you're going to hear a lot in today's interview. PIH Health serves about 3.7 million residents in the LA and Orange County areas of California. They have been dedicated to a simple mission and vision of patients first. They're a three hospital system with multi-specialty physician group, and they face no shortage of challenges during this pandemic. We're gonna talk about consumer engagement. We're gonna talk about the future of marketing and some advice that Deb would pass on to others who wanna get better about getting outside of the four walls and going to where the consumer is and finding value there before they ever come in for a traditional patient experience. Here we go. Deb, it is wonderful to have you with us today on the Patient No Longer podcast. And I just want to dig right in. You've worn many hats and you continue to wear many hats at PIH Health. You're located in California, which has been pretty quiet and not controversial at all during the pandemic. (laughs) Give us a little bit about maybe the biggest lesson you've learned and how you apply it to all those things you do at PIH Health. You know, I have to say the biggest lesson I've learned is that preparation works. You know, we didn't know anything about this virus when it came out. No one did, right? It was a novel virus. That was the whole situation. But we did know how to handle a disaster. So we've been training for earthquakes in California for all the time I've been in healthcare. And we knew what to do. We knew what processes to follow. Everyone stepped up and did what they were trained to do. And it was instinctive. So I think that was probably the biggest aha for me. Fortunately, in my 25 plus years in healthcare, I haven't had the need to implement that. We've done a lot of practicing. 9-11 came kind of close, but out here, it really didn't impact us the way it did on the East Coast, but we sure were running around that day, right? That training and all the drills you go through and all the preparation you go through, it felt like it was a good thing. We started this because we knew how to fold into that. The other thing that I think we learned from the consumer standpoint is that no information was too much information. The public was just dying for information. And so we published every day. We published our stats every day. We published the reality of what was going on every day. And I sent communication to our elected officials and our city leaders every day so that we could let them know what was happening, not only because the news media was playing games with a lot of the messaging that we wanted our own community to know what was happening here. We wanted to put it in perspective to how many people, the percentage of our population that was impacted, not just the numbers, because the numbers seemed alarming. But when you looked at it as being less than 1% of Los Angeles County, it helped people go, okay, this is a bad thing, but I can walk outside. You know, it was just, we just communicated a lot. I think that was probably the most important thing that we did. You have a wide swath of population that you cover, and you've got LA County and Orange County, which don't exactly think alike. (laughs) And so you touched base with the community so frequently. And I think that's paid off. You know, we've been tracking COVID 19 at NRC Health. We know that last year, people actually valued individual experts, your Dr. Fauci's and your Dr. Burks, these people that became household names over their local hospital and health system. But in 2021, same question. We've noticed that hospitals and health systems have leapfrogged everyone else as the experts and the people that that are trusted the most 
to handle COVID-19. So somewhere in there, some of this has paid off. And yet here we find ourselves in 2021 in the middle of potentially the fourth wave nationally. In California, I think your mask mandate was out of effect for like a day. So give us a little bit more about what it is like to manage COVID-19 right now. You know, we're back up in patients again. They are 90% unvaccinated. So the message is go get vaccinated. So everything that we're doing now is very different than what we were doing in December of 2020 and January of 2021 when it was really chaotic here. At that point in time, we were really trying to figure out processes, figuring out where to find PPE, you know, how much are we having to buy on the gray market and how are we going to make sure everyone that comes into our place is safe? Now we're just trying to use the information of the volume of patients to educate people on why they need to get vaccinated. So it's a completely different issue. The staff knows how to treat the patients now. They're not guessing or experimenting, which in the very beginning days, you know, across the country, everyone was trying to try every medication to see what would work. And so that part of it is, I think, calmed. But we're just trying to use the information to educate people on vaccination and how that's the only way to end it. Yeah, and it's so interesting. It's the same pandemic, but a different set of challenges. And for you specifically, a different set of challenges on educating the public and being proactive. I remember visiting you in 2019. We didn't wear masks. I I got on a (laughs) plane. I came there. Didn't have a second thought about that. And one of the reasons I'd come out and had the opportunity to speak with your medical group was because you guys had such a proactive approach to patient education. I don't know if you can go back and think about those beginning steps of that. That seems so long ago now, but I think there's a lot of folks out here who are struggling both in COVID right now to educate their population, but just thinking about when we emerge from this, how do I go out back out and reintroduce myself a little bit, you know, post-pandemic, post-crisis to educate people on healthcare, especially now that it's been so politicized? I think it's just consistency and multiple channels. We educate on social media. We put a lot of information out there. We do a lot of blogs so that we can get more detailed information out. We push it out so that they can click and read a little more detail if they want. You know, someday we might get back to in-person education. (laughs) You know, we haven't had a chance to do that in a couple, almost a couple of years. We reach out to our chambers. We work with the Chambers of Commerce to have them help share the message that we're trying to communicate, partner with our cities to make sure that they are reinforcing the messages, work really closely with the city managers in all of our communities. I think it just takes multiple channels. It takes multiple outreaches. I think early in my life, someone told me that marketing is a rule of sevens and you need to hit people seven different times in order to get a message across. And so we try to follow that and make sure that we're using different methods because we're never going to hit everyone with the same message. I love that sort of multimodal, almost exhaustive approach that you take. And I once was sitting at SHSMD and had someone come up to me after we were talking about marketing and advertising using NRC Health's market insight statistics mm-hmm. and how you test those campaigns. You test them ahead of time, you deploy them and see how they go afterwards. And you're very familiar with that process. But right. I had someone say, I know that the campaign is effective when my internal marketing department is really sick of it. Like when we are personally very bored with the messaging and they're just scratching at the walls to do something different, that's when we think the consumer out there is probably starting to finally uptake it. 
And you've done such a good job of that. You know, you've used a phrase in the past that I really like, and I want you to expand on. You've talked about meeting the customer where they are. I think some people probably envision that as a patient in a gown, but we're talking about a very small percentage of the population. And you look at the entire population as a prospective future patient. So talk to me a little bit more about that sort of psychological approach of meeting this future patient, this future customer, where they are now. Originally, we thought about that as the different places that they are. So we have a huge home health department, hundreds of staff that are out in the field on a daily basis. And so that's not, you know, that's looking at things very differently than acute care. We have a large medical, multi-specialty medical group. So doing things to help the consumer access us is probably what I mean more than anything else is having multiple channels again to access. So can they text us to book an appointment? Are we taking their medication that they've just been prescribed when they're in the hospital to their bed before they leave the hospital so they don't have to stop at the pharmacy on their way home? Are we making it easy to go online and book an appointment if they want to, if they, you know, 10 o'clock at night, they remember, oh yeah, it's time to get my mammogram and they can go online and book that appointment. We're looking at all those different kinds of things. You know, not everything we do can be transported. A lot of things are going to need to be in a big room with a big piece of equipment, but the things that we can do, we want to look at it from the consumer standpoint and try and make sure that they can access us any way that works for them. That's pretty much our thought process on it. Yeah. And really on their terms, you know, I like what you said internally, there's always a resistance there and we've encountered that you longer than me, but this idea that nothing can be transported. You talk to some physicians and and some executives and I've ran into them on the trail and they say, you know, really, I, I need the patient to come to me. And I always think of that hospital tower, you know, it's like the hospital tower is like the bastion of convenience. If you're in a white coat, pop among the different <laughs> floors, you do your thing. It's your hub, right? And the tower is like the biggest, most intimidating, most inconvenient thing to the everyday person who's coming in for care. How do I deal with this? Where do I go? What do I do? I feel really out of my element. Back to parking, right? You're in California. Where do I park? What do I do? How long does it take me to get there? And I just love how you guys have kind of reversed that and said, where can we go out from the tower and appeal to the consumer in where they are, their setting? A lot of folks struggle, whether they're leadership, in strategy, in marketing, they struggle with being consumer-centric. We've sat through many presentations where we've said, you know, here's the principles of consumerism. Here's the data you need to collect. If you're out there sort of preaching to folks who are the choir, they want to, at least in thought, be more consumer-centric, but they're not there. They're not you. They're not doing some of the things you've done at PIH Health. What's some of the advice that you would give those folks who want to be more consumer-centric, but just aren't there now? You know, I think the easiest thing is to follow the We call it our vision, but it's not really a traditional vision, which is patients first. If you put the patient first, if you're thinking, how does this impact the patient before, how do we work out the workflow? Then you start with the consumer-centric mindset. Everything that we do here is patients first. And if someone comes in and says, well, it's too hard to do that, then it's like, well, let me tell you how the consumer is going to see that. And then you figure out a way to make it easier for you. When I started in this industry, so much of it was, this is how it has to work. This is how we've always done it. This is the hoops you have to jump through and the boxes you have to fill first before you can do the next thing. And that's just not the case anymore. It's what do we need to accomplish for the patient? And how do we make that happen? Maybe we have to change the way we do things a little bit. 
but let's think about that. And so I think that's probably the best thing for me. And I say this in meetings all the time. My 83 year old mother needs to be able to function and do this. Now she was zooming with her doctors on her phone, on her laptop, on her iPad, all through COVID. She loved it. She was great. I realize it's not every 83-year-old's ability to do that, but she was using it. So how do we make that easy for her? How do we teach her how to do that? So using her as an example, I think about when I was a mom of young kids, how would I access that? How do I make it easy for a mom to book all of her appointments together for all of her kids instead of, oh gosh, there's one on Tuesday and one on Thursday. And how does she figure out how to get all those kids there? You know, so we just kind of put ourselves in their shoes and try to put them first and then figure out how to make it work. You can just tell that you've self-actualized that, you know, this idea that you and your family members have gone through healthcare and you never lose sight of that. No matter if you're four hours into an all-day strategy meeting and it's a mind-numbing agenda, and it's so easy to forget about the patient and not put them first. And I love that vision, patients first. I mean, that's a vision you can remember. We've talked about that from time to time on the podcast, the struggle of getting mission and vision and the values to actually be internalized among the staff. One other thing, though, I mean, a few years ago, you went through a rebrand. What was it like to rebrand? And did that patient first perspective, did the through the consumer's eyes sort of approach, did that factor in as you rebranded? It absolutely did, because it's the first thing that we made sure carried over. So the rebranding was not as challenging when we were a single hospital. So we rebranded as a single hospital with a medical group. Shortly after we added a second hospital. So it was converting that hospital into that brand, into that culture. And to be honest with you, they adopted it easier. They were so ready for some strong vision and leadership that they jumped in and they were working real hard to live up to that vision. And so that was a pretty easy transition. So that was, you know, 2012 when we rebranded, 2013 when we brought on the next hospital. Then fast forward to December of 2019, two days before Christmas, we bring in the third hospital three months before COVID. And then that organization didn't really get the chance to come on board. We took over that hospital over the Christmas holidays, came back in January, everything was fine, started the process of rebranding that organization, trying to bring in their culture to our culture and merge it together. And then the world fell apart. And so it became the focus of COVID. And so we're looking for the opportunity to really try and do more of that. So we've tried to keep that up going during the time. And there's been a lot of transition. It has evolved, but there's still opportunity there. We had some windows in California where things weren't as stressful during the summer of last year. And so we were able to do some things and make some improvements and embrace the hospital a little bit more. You know, hopefully this peak we're in right now will die down. We can get back on track with that. I think that's so interesting, that third hospital that started. You know, I think about in my own life, the work colleagues that I have that started either right before the pandemic or during the pandemic, I've had a thousand Zooms with them, but have I really met them? (laughs) Do I really know who they are until I see them in person? Some of that stuff is just on hold. And, you know, we think about that from the consumer perspective, too. We see a lot of consumers still putting things on hold. Something you and I have talked about, the deferment of care, something that we started asking about in the Market Insights Survey in 2008, because people were putting off care during the Great Recession. And we always kept that question in because it never went to 0%. It sort of bottomed out in the teens. 
around 2013 and then started going back up as healthcare has continued to get more expensive. Do you feel there's a group of people that have put off care that are going to flood back in once they've got the green light? Do you feel like it's going to be a years-long process of getting people reintroduced to normal healthcare delivery patterns? You know, we might still have some that are doing that, but our volumes are back. Our emergency room volumes are back. Our screening volumes are back. Our doctor's offices are back. We've really spent a considerable amount of energy over the last year, really telling people it's safe to get your health care and kind of using the message of don't let the disease you don't have prevent you from taking care of one you do have. That's really been our don't delay care campaign. And California Hospital Association has been also reinforcing with that same message. So, you know, we're doing fine. People have come back. People are starting to get screens again. We've really been trying to promote that to make sure people understand that it's important to not ignore those things. And we continue to monitor it as well. You know, when electives were all going away during some of the peaks last year, we saw in a particular month, there was about 51% of people saying, I'm putting off something. It may not be a serious emergent condition, let's hope not. But, you know, I'm putting off something that would require me to come into a healthcare facility or meet with a white coat. And some of that deferred to virtual care, which I want to ask next. But I'll just point out, our numbers are still in the 20s in terms of percentage of consumers right now in 2021, summer 2021, that are putting off care. There's still people, whatever it is that they're managing on their own, or they're worried about COVID, or they're worried about the finances. And then there's people that tried out virtual care that might not otherwise have ever done it. We saw that number of people who said, I've had a past health experience, it jumped from 15% to 35%. Now, a third of this country, a lot of them due to COVID, have had a virtual experience. Talk to me about that. Someone who would have normally come in or maybe not come in physically, who instead used a telehealth experience in 2020 or 2021. Do you view those patients differently? Do you view them the same? Do you think about how you're going to engage them in the future? Does that require more virtual care? What does that little segment of the population, what does that look like in terms of as you sit where you sit and try to engage them? I think it's here to stay. And I think the people, there's a lot of people who really found value in that. Honestly, doctors who learn to appreciate it because, you know, two years ago, there were a lot of doctors who were adamantly opposed to using virtual care at all. And a lot of our medical staff has come up and said, hey, you know what? I see the value in the time I get to spend with my patient in that conversation. And so there's been some real positives there. I know one physician who retired during COVID and said she's coming back just to do televisits from a primary care standpoint. She liked doing it. I think that there's going to be some real opportunity for us to use that more frequently than we ever thought we would. Kaiser's in California, obviously, in a pretty big way. And they've been doing that for a while. A good portion of their virtual visits have been on primary care visits have been virtually. And so it just helped to reinforce that message, I think, a little bit. So we'll yeah. continue to reach out to people offering that, offering them to connect with us through any means that works for them. Like I said, we want them to be able to text us and book an appointment if that's what works for them. I like the way you put it, whatever works for them, not for you. It's, it's crazy how minds change. And I'm thinking of those physicians. My last in-person visit before our very recent NRCL symposium, my last trip on a plane was February, 2020. I think we all remember the last time pre-pandemic we got on a plane. I was in Florida at a governance Institute conference doing a concurrent session on virtual care. And I had so many physician arms folded in that. (laughs) I had a guy come up to me afterwards and he chased me down the hallway, which is always a bad sign, right? 
And he said, you know, I disagree with you. And I said, you know, please expand on that. And he goes, I've got to see my patients in person. I have to have them here in my room. That's what I went to medical school for. I'm never doing virtual care. I never got his name. He, he ran off as quick <laughs> as he ran up. But I think about him. I think about those physicians who were really reluctant, who all of a sudden were thrust into, hey, people aren't coming in. You've got to adapt to this. And man, did consumers adapt to it as well. In fact, our numbers right now indicate that those people who had that virtual care visit in lieu of physical, 74% said they were overall satisfied. That's a lot higher sometimes than average physical numbers. So as you think about that at PIH Health, are you trying to design that in the future post-pandemic? And are you fighting certain physicians? I know I'm picking on physicians, but are people trying to claw that back and say, no, no, if they can come in in person, they need to? You know, they're not. I mean, there might be some physicians that um, still prefer to have only personal visits, but a lot of our medical staff is like, okay, you know what? That works. There's some circumstances where that's completely appropriate care. Follow up from a procedure. You know, why do they need to come back in to just have a conversation to check in to see how they're doing? You know, that can be done on a virtual visit. We don't need to backlog my office for those visits. I can set it aside an hour or half an hour and take those calls. So I think that there's going to be a definite change in the way that we deliver care moving forward. I love that you're embracing that hybrid approach and you've got some support from physicians that can be crucial (laughs) in marketing, right? I came across a Twitter thread a couple of weeks ago that was talking about how there's so much automation now and there's AI and there's so many grassroots ways to reach people that maybe we don't need major marketing campaigns anymore? Do we really need hospital marketing in the future, or is it going to look drastically different? In your opinion, is that true? And what's the biggest threat to hospital marketing for you to be able to do your job successfully in a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now? You know, I don't think it's AI, and I don't think it's digital anything. I think it's contracting. For us in California, more and more of the providers are aligning with health plans And that leaves the consumer's choice to once a year. They make a health plan choice and a medical group choice once a year, and then they're done. And then their doctor tells them where to go. And it becomes very much a closed network kind of environment. That to us is the biggest threat to the consumers in California. And it's absolutely the biggest threat to marketing of healthcare, because if you take away the consumer's choice, then your target audience for marketing becomes the physicians for referrals. If they're contractually obligated to direct you somewhere, they don't even get to make the choice. I think that's really the biggest issue. I'm not going to name names, but there's a couple of organizations that are doing that pretty aggressively in our community. It's not something that I'm a big fan of. I believe in personal choice and I want to be able to let people choose the doctor that they think is going to care for them the best. And if you choose that type of health plan, then that's the decision that you're making for yourself. That's completely fine. But if you don't get that choice. I think that someone who would share your opinion completely would be the average U.S. healthcare consumer, because (laughs) in their mindset, a lot of them have just started to finally feel like they have some control, started to have some resources. Now I can finally go online and maybe find a few answers about how to choose a doctor or maybe what I'll pay. I'm just starting to get that control. I'm like a teenager with my first car. And then a lot of them, if this is true, are going to have that control rested away just as quick as they got it. And I think we're going to see more frustration and confusion and just feeling that they're locked in without a choice. If you don't have a choice, you're not really a consumer. That was one of the things that was a takeaway. I mean, 20 years ago, 
there was a patient who made an HMO choice and didn't understand what that meant and then was stubborn about, I'm not going to get the care where you're directing me to get it. I'm going to wait until I change my health plan and go where I want to go next year. And it cost him his life. And it turned into a lawsuit against the organization I used to work for and the patient's family lost because they made a choice, but they didn't want to live within that choice. And so it's understanding the decisions that you make. And it's so complicated in healthcare. We don't make it easy. So helping people to understand how they make the right choice for them is what I think we have an obligation to do. Yeah, I think you're very aligned to the the average consumer outlook, and that's where we should be aligned. I've got but one more question for you. You're a veteran in this field, but we try to ask us at the end of every patient a longer interview. So you've got someone else in the country. You're not competing with them, so you can give them advice. They're starting day one in healthcare marketing. What is one piece of advice you would pass on to them? Simplify it. Don't let the clinical people tell you how to communicate the message. That's probably the biggest lesson I learned. And you know this, but I came to healthcare from the automotive industry. So I really didn't have the healthcare background at all on day one. And I was taking a lot of the direction from the clinical leaders because they were telling me what we needed to communicate. And when I started reading it back to myself, I went, well, this makes no sense to anyone who doesn't understand (laughs) healthcare. And so really learning to simplify it so that the consumer can understand how they can make choices moving forward and what they need to do. And, you know, a great physician is able to simplify that for their patients. And so I think a great marketing person has to be able to do the same. It's a little like Mark Twain, you know, I didn't have time to write you a short letter, so I wrote you a long one. I think, you know, (laughs) simplifying things is hard work. I love that answer. And at NRC Health, we're huge fans of what you're doing at PIH Health. You're fighting the good fight out there in California. So We wish you the very best in what you're doing, and we want to thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. That was a conversation with Deb Leakin. Lots of great insights there. She is so good about meeting the customer where they are and all the challenges and things that we go through to get there. Brian, what are your initial thoughts after taking that in? She had so many great points in there. One of the words that I has been circling in my head that I took away from that is with regard to their messaging to their community around COVID measures and precautions. She said the word reality. The community needs to hear the reality of the situation, the reality of treatment options. They're using that word very intentionally because the media is not always our friend, right? <laughs> uh, so we're looking for dynamic situations and things that get clicks and there's obviously political lean to which media you're going to tune into and, and what you're going to consume. And reality is not always central to that, right? And we've talked about the need for truth, truth being the antidote to fear, right? We've talked about that a couple of times. So I really like what Deb said as she circled around that idea. They felt it was their responsibility to bring a message of reality to dealing with this situation to their patients, to those that they serve. I totally agree. I think that's part of how she powers the honest approach to what she does. And they were a great client to feature because they don't just say, we figured it out. Everybody listening knows you've sat through those presentations where someone gets up there and they say, we've pretty much figured it out. And they're not being ironic. And you know that nobody has, and there's holes in what everyone does. But at PAH, I feel like she has just focused so much on getting out there 
trying to start a dialogue. It's not always going to be perfect. You're going to manage some expectations, but people are still going to have issues in PX. But get out there and do it. I love the authenticity. What did you think about her reflecting on her struggles, on being consumer-centric, especially in the middle of COVID? They're in a tough situation right now. When you two spoke about the tower being the bastion of convenience, right? We've talked about this a lot and heard a lot of your work on this, Ryan. And it's so true. And their efforts to get outside of the tower, to meet people where they are, to message in a way people can understand, to deliver services, physical care and virtual care services in a way that makes sense. They're appropriate for their patients at this time. I think it's really important when organizations have self-admitted struggles about being patient-centric. Where I think the struggle can really get difficult is if an organization says, oh, hey, we're no longer going to design around ourselves. We're only going to be patient-centric. And then you create all kinds of operational issues for yourself. So a balanced organization, one like PIH Health, as Deb have referred to, is that you need to take in mind what a consumer wants and needs with regards to their healthcare consumption, the way they're going to manage their care, and then what the organization can do and is willing to do. As you find that balance, as you strike that, then you're going to find something that is appropriate for both parties, which actually just draws back the importance to a really good intelligent design schema, right? And that's yeah. almost always fed. Like the fuel to that is patient customer feedback and feedback from your providers. And when you have that, then you can actually get to an opportunity for co-design. And when you're co-designing things, that co-piece is so important there because you have a chance at designing something that makes sense for the organization, for your infrastructure, for the people that you have to provide care. And then it also makes sense for the people who are going to receive it. Well, that's so true. And thinking back, you know, Deb was one of the first people in my career that I heard, especially in healthcare, talk about co-designing with the consumer or co-designing with the future patient. And they're really trying to live that out as imperfect as it can sometimes be, as you pointed out. You know, I have to say, when I asked her about is this the end of marketing, and Brian, you've seen this too going around Twitter of like, what are we going to do when AI does everything and writes everything and approaches everybody? And, and I thought she had a great answer. I didn't totally see that coming with narrow networks. And I had a doom and gloom response, right? That the consumer is just getting used to choice and now it's going to be potentially pulled away and you go here and that's all you do. What's your take on that? We all understand the concept of narrow network, which is why we've been marketing to and catering to providers for as long as we have, right? You know, you want to be the referral point of choice from the front door of many health systems, which if we exclude the ED in this scenario, it's definitely primary care. So when you want to be on the other end of that referral pattern, that's great. We know that it drives business, but it's not the sole source of a business for a healthcare organization, right? We know they go online. We know they research. We know they talk to family and friends. We know they trust social media. It's not an either or approach. It's definitely an and statement, right? You want to control network referral flow. That's very important to the organization. And if there is some sort of a stoppage there, then that needs to be addressed. And you can work on messaging or work on incentives to make sure that that referral pattern is going in the direction that you want it to for your organization. But it doesn't mean we can turn our eye to the consumer stated desire of choice, of control. Like I need guidance, but I want to make my call, right? This is something that I at least need to be a part of when it comes to my decision-making. I'm not just going to take a blind referral. So I know that Deb approaches work in that way. She's thinking about it as an and statement and not an either or. Her point there that really landed on me was around the topic of deferment. And Deb said something that I'm going to try to read this quote verbatim because I thought it was so good. When she was talking about addressing the issue of deferment in a time of COVID, she said, they're trying to communicate to folks that, quote, 
Don't let the disease you don't have, meaning COVID, stop you from managing the disease you do have, end quote. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I thought that was such a strong statement and really an anchor piece that they can design their messaging around to attack the issue of deferment. What's your thought around that piece as you guys had that conversation? I was ready to put that in an ad campaign. I was ready to test that with AdVoice, our advertising testing solution. I mean, I think that that's so good. And it, it does a couple of things. It reminds people that there's lots of things that are important to your health and you have to go in for those things, right? Like as much as we want a connection, it still requires us to get up and get active and take care of ourselves. And if there's something you need to have treated, you need to do it. But it also touches on just that myopia of covid it's all about COVID, right? It's like nothing else exists. And I think that, you know, you had mentioned the outside of this wrap up that, you know, if you listen to the media, if you listen to the government, if you read too much stuff on your phone, we'll just leave it at that. You can get obsessed and overwhelmed by COVID. So I love that message to her. I feel like it would be incredibly pertinent. And I got to point out this, the pay it forward answer. I loved, and I thought of you too, Brian, because she said, simplify everything, right? Simplify what you're doing, make it easy, make it straightforward because it's not for you. It's not for the organization. It's for the consumer. But what did you think of that answer, Brian? You know exactly what I thought about it. I thought, <laughs> wow, you know, the irony of that word is that it's the hardest thing to do, right? It's what we all should be striving for. I mean, if you're talking about the way you're handling things internally, organizationally, strive to simplify, right? Remove barriers, remove friction. If you're talking about the consumer journey, my goodness. It means the world to a consumer to simplify that journey, to demystify it, make it easy. So that should be just on a big framed piece of art in every person's office. Every administrator at every health system mm -hmm. and every vendor that serves health systems should all have this big thing framed that just says in black and white letters, simplify. Yes, very much so. And right underneath it, one of your favorite quotes, complexity is free, right? We can always have <laughs> complexity. The simplification part, as you said, is the hard work. And Deb Legan's doing the hard work. So we'll leave it at that. It was a wonderful interview with someone who's on the ground fighting the good fight in California. And we wish her the absolute best. Thank her again for joining. And for everyone here, you know, we keep hearing people say, gosh, I heard a great episode of Patient No Longer. Where do I go again? Well, if you're listening, you're somewhere where you can subscribe right now, wherever you are, whatever format, Apple, Spotify, something else, hit that subscribe button. And these episodes will be dropping to you every two weeks. We really look forward to you joining again in the future.